1993, a bunch of FBI agents conducted a raid at Southwood Psychiatric Hospital in San Diego. The hospital was under investigation for medical insurance fraud. After several hours of reviewing medical records, the agents had gotten hungry. It worked up an appetite, so the agent in charge of the investigation decided to order some pizza, right? It's pretty natural. So he calls the the pizza site, and according to Snopes.com, which is a site dedicated to sleuthing out these urban legends, the following is actually a conversation, a transcript of the conversation that took place. So this agent calls the pizza place, and he says, Hello, I'd like to order 19 large pizzas and 67 cans of soda. Pizza man says this, And where would you like them delivered? The agent says, over here at the psychiatric hospital. Pizza man, I'm sorry, did you say the psychiatric hospital? Agent, that's right, I'm an FBI agent. Pizza man, you say you're an FBI agent. That's correct. Just about everybody here is an FBI agent. (laughs) And you say you're at the psychiatric hospital? That's correct. And make sure that you don't go through the front doors. We have those locked. You'll have to go around back to the service entrance to deliver the pizzas, pizza man. I'm sorry, did you say that you are all FBI agents? That's correct. How soon can you get the pizzas here? Pizza man and everyone in the hospital, again, is a FBI agent? That's right. We've been here all day and we are starving. How are you going to pay for this, pizza man says. I have my checkbook right here. Again, and you're all FBI agents? That's right. Everyone here is an FBI agent. Can you remember to bring the pizzas and the sodas to the service entrance in the rear? We have the front doors locked. Pizza man, I don't think so. Hangs up the phone. FBI can never catch a break, can they? It's a shame. They were just crazy hungry, I guess. Poor guys just wanted some pizzas. Have you ever had your identity challenged? Maybe... You've been given the authority to do something. Maybe you're on official business and you go out to a certain place and you enter into that place and people don't recognize you. They've never seen you before and they kind of question you and they wonder and they're like, hey, what on earth are you doing here? Who gave you the right to do what you are doing? Maybe some of you have happened, has that happened to you? I had that happen to me when I worked as a, a plain clothes guard in Long Creek and I would go out and to the towns and check in on the kids that we had released and I had to do certain things and people would ask me all the time, what right do you have to do that? Well, can you imagine if it was kind of switched and then you were in charge at a place or you thought you were in charge of a place and someone walks into that place and then begins barking out orders, begins changing things up. What if right now someone came in off the street and began to move things around. Maybe they didn't like the way the decor committee has decorated this place. So they begin to take things and then they begin to challenge what we are doing as a church. What do you think would happen besides Mark Williams and the rest of the security crew tackling them to the ground? But let's say we didn't have a security crew. Would we take issue with that? What would we say to them? We'd say, hey. Who gives you the right to do this? 
Let me see some credentials. We pick up here in John in a very similar situation in John chapter 2. Beginning at verse 13, Jesus walks into Israel's house. Or what they thought was their house. Where they thought they were in charge. And Jesus does some very necessary spring cleaning. There are some bystanders there. And there are the authorities that challenge his right to do this. And they basically ask him. This passage is really about two things that we see in Jesus Christ. His identity, who he is, and his authority. The authority that comes along with that identity. Who he is and the right that, he's, the right that he has to do what he is doing. And as I said, I took this from the perspective of those challenging Jesus as this often happens today. But there are those who saw what Jesus does here in this passage and they realize who he is and submit to that authority. Here in these, this passage, he provides us with two credentials. Two credentials regarding his identity and his authority to do what he has just done. The first credential is seen in verses 13 through 17. His zeal reveals his heavenly relation. So beginning at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those that were selling oxen and sheep and doves. And the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those that were selling doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. It's so nice to just be able to take a sip of water without taking a contraption off of my face. On October 29, 2012, Hurricane Sandy, unofficially known as Superstorm Sandy, slammed into the coast of northeastern United States. Category 2 storm became the largest Atlantic hurricane on record as measured by diameter with winds spanning 1,100 miles. Experts estimate the storm's monetary damages topped $68 billion and 286 people were killed during that storm. As Sandy bore down on New York City, almost everything was shut down, except for one rogue Starbucks near Times Square. Desperate but highly committed and zealous Starbucks junkies fought high winds dangerous rains, and dire warnings just to get a latte or a cup of coffee. Bethany Owings, 28, walked 10 blocks in the storm with her one-year-old daughter for the fix. She said, I saw on Facebook that they were open. It was scary not having Starbucks. I think something else is scary in this illustration, and it's not the fact that she didn't have Starbucks. Later on, someone else, Chris Hernandez, said when he found out they were open, he was like, pack up the baby, let's go. I didn't know they were all going to be closed, and I started to panic. There is nothing else I would have gone out for. 
this makes my day complete. This is only in New York City, I think, folks, so I don't know if this were happen in Maine. Alex Mengway walked more than 20 blocks looking for an open Starbucks. He says he goes four or five times a day, and one gentleman said, I'm really glad that these guys are open. There is nowhere else where I can get a pumpkin spice latte. Would you guys say that these folks are zealous for Starbucks, that they have a passion a commitment to getting Starbucks. I like Starbucks coffee. I know some folks don't. I think it is one of the best coffee brands out there. I'm a Starbucks snob, kind of. But I'm not that zealous for Starbucks coffee. It is really interesting because our actions and our passions and our zeals reveal something of what? Who we are and what we care about, what our concerns are in life. These individuals, as funny as it is, have a problem. They have a problem that's controlling them. They are actually consumed by this passion for Starbucks. Jesus Christ reveals something to us in his identity by what he does here in this passage. Jesus is kind of like Hurricane Sandy, and he storms into the temple, and he begins to take things out. And he does so because of who he is, because of his relation to the Father, and because his primary concern in life is the pure worship of God the Father. And that is revealed in his zeal. He will stop at nothing to see that happens. Here the time setting is the time of the Passover. It's expected that good Jews will travel up to Jerusalem and celebrate. This is the first of three Passovers that are mentioned in the Gospel of John. And there's been question as to whether or not Jesus clean, cleanses the temple once or twice because the synoptic Gospels, specifically a couple of the other ones, have him mentioned, have him doing this at the end of his ministry. As a matter of fact, it is that cleansing of the temple that leads to his ultimate death. Because after that cleansing of the temple, they actually plotted to take him out. And John here places this cleansing at the beginning of his ministry, but really for the same reasons. And I don't think that there was just one cleansing. I actually believe that there were two cleansings. Because the, the weight of evidence that points to just one cleansing doesn't measure up when it is combined with the way that John sticks chronologically with everything else. So here at the beginning of his ministry, John shows that this confrontation, and yes, eventually this confrontation is what is going to lead to the demise of Jesus Christ. This is his real first public outing. And what do we see in that? And it's really good for us to see that once we begin to take Jesus Christ and his concerns for the pure worship of God out into the public square, challenging the religious institutions of our day, things are going to happen. People don't like that. As a matter of fact, I think that two, two cleansings make sense. And it really points us to why we need Jesus Christ. Because how often is it that God cleanses something from our lives and what do we do? We return right back to it later on. 
So there's two to three years in between cleansings, and I think this fits more naturally. So here at the temple, this time would be very, very busy. Worshippers would be coming from all over the nations to celebrate the Passover. It is this reason why they have set up market in the temple courts, because they're coming and they don't have their sacrifices for the Passover, so they would have to purchase those sacrifices, and their coinage wouldn't be acceptable, so they would have to then turn in their coinage to be able to pay them in the money that was required. So Jesus sees this taking place in his father's house, and he's angry. And his passages like these that we sometimes really don't know what to do with. And either we look at them, we kind of gloss over them, where it's kind of like, oh, Jesus isn't that way anymore. Jesus doesn't get mad like that anymore. Jesus isn't going to do stuff like that anymore. Or we look at that and we say, oh, that applies to the, the Jewish leaders. That applies to the Jewish folks who have perverted the religion of God. And we often make Jesus out to be some sort of passive hippie. That he just doesn't have this type of passion anymore. That he's not going to do these things. It seems that Jesus is angry with the mere fact that this is just happening in the temple. So whether or not they are exploiting the people isn't really known. It's possible that they were raising the prices. It's possible that they were high interest rates. But that is not the point. Jesus is mad because the worship of God the Father, bringing people into the worship of God the Father, has been replaced by the business of the world. They have brought that which needed to stay out of the worship into the middle of the temple. So what does Jesus do? Does he come in and he's, and he's like, oh, hey, I'm sorry, you're kind of busy. I don't want to interrupt right now. I, I just, I know, I'm sorry, but can you take this stuff outside? Did you not get the memo? Because it's really important that, you know, this, this house is for God. Is that the way Jesus handles this? No. He comes in and he shows them who is boss, but it is in doing that that he is revealing something about his character and his main concern. Jesus' main concern, and he's going to do anything to make that happen, is the pure worship of God the Father. Jesus wants worshipers for God the Father, and Jesus eventually, and what he's doing in this passage, replaces that temple, and he's the only one who can bring them to the Father. He doesn't come in, and he doesn't talk nicely to them. And what he's doing here isn't sinful at all. This is a righteous anger. As a matter of fact, it is that righteous anger, that zeal that the disciples see a connection to who he is. He comes in and he doesn't say this is God's house. He says, this is my father's house. And he takes the time to make this whip of cords. And I, I find this really fascinating because we learn something else about Jesus here. Notice here, he does, he does a few things. He's a, he's a man of action, especially when it comes to the worship of God, isn't he? He, he takes time. He makes, this, this took a little bit of time. It probably was some rushes or reeds. 
He takes time. He makes this whip of cords, and it says he drove, he scattered, and he poured out, and he overturned. But then notice what he does to the doves. This is the part I actually love about this. So he's, he's driving them out. He's not whipping the animals. He's driving them out, kind of like a cattle driver. He pours out the money, and he flips some tables. But then he says to the guys with the doves, and he says, take these things out. He doesn't scare the doves. Because the doves would have died, probably. You ever see birds get scared to death? The birds can get scared to death. If he went over there with that whip, they would have been scared to death. So here, even in that anger, even in that righteous anger, he's like, take those doves out. He doesn't scare the doves. He's compassionate in that. I just, I just find that kind of amazing when we look at that. So this is most likely the court of the Gentiles where everyone would gather to worship. And if the, so th there's a couple things going on here. If all of those tables are present, if all of those people are present, then there's no room for people to do what? To worship God. And instead of the sound of praise and prayer, there's the bleeding of sheep, the cooing of doves, and the sound of bargainers. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Because his main goal in life is to bring people to the Father. His main goal in life is the worship of the Father and the purity of that worship. And he is willing to go to great lengths to see that happen. As a matter of fact, he gives us his life to make sure that happens. It's quite possible that there's an allusion to what Jesus will do at his second coming, written in Zechariah 14, 21, and there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord or a dealer in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. But it is the second, it is Psalm 69, 9, that the disciples see something. His zeal is revealing his relationship to God and his primary mission in life to bring worshipers to him. I want to ask us something. You and I who call ourselves Christ followers, where is our zeal at? Are we this passionate for God? There's a verse that is oft repeated. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor doing what? Serving the Lord. I think that when we read a passage like this, we have to realize something about Christ. This is his main concern. And as we go through the Gospel of John, we've been talking about getting to know Jesus better so that we can trust and believe in him, but also so that we can be conformed to his image through that power that he gives us. And therefore, the concerns of Christ need to be our concerns as well. 
This is what we need to be concerned with. The house of God isn't this building. It's not. The house of God is us as individuals and collectively as a body. And Jesus is concerned for the worship of the Father that takes place within this body of believers, isn't he? And Jesus has the right to come in here and clean things up, doesn't he? To make sure. And maybe, maybe we're not marketing the church, even though that's a big danger, right? Making a commodity out of Jesus Christ, building our own little kingdoms, building our own little platforms, bringing the world into our worship. Maybe we're not doing that. Because he has the right to come in here and change things up and throw things out, doesn't he? But maybe we just have better things to do. Maybe instead of the world's tables, there's cobwebs. And the reason is because our zeal and our passion is elsewhere. Does a passion for God consume you? Does a passion for God consume this church? Maybe we'll walk 20 blocks in a hurricane for some Starbucks, but we can't be bothered to come out on a sunny day for a church event. This isn't to guilt us into anything. But when I went through this passage this past week, it made me think, do do I care that people aren't worshiping God right now? Do I care that there are people out there who don't know the Father? Am I that concerned? Am I that zealous for the worship of God the Father? Am I sharing the concerns of Christ who in this event leads to his destruction? It is this event and his confrontation and his replacement of that temple. This is Christ. And Christ cares about his church. What do we see him doing in Revelation? He's walking among the lampstands, isn't he? And he's saying, hey, you guys look really good here. Guess what? You need to fix this. Because if you don't, I'm going to take it away. You know why? Because I have every right to do it because I died for you. You belong to me. It's not my church. It's his church. This zeal ate him up. It consumed him. And it is this zeal that leads him to his death. Why? Because it is his primary mission in life. He was zealous for the Father's house because he and the Father are one. It was a revealing zeal, but not all saw it, and some actually challenged it. Brings us to our second point, his resurrection 
provides the ultimate confirmation. Verses 18 through 22. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days? He was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. And Jesus comes in, he takes control of the situation. It was his father's house, and in his relationship to the father, he was the son being faithful and purifying that house. And he is actually establishing the current worship of the father is now going to take place through him. Ultimately, Jesus, and what he says here, he calls himself the temple. The temple is where God's presence is. The worship of God the Father is going to center on one person, that is the person of Jesus Christ. We come to God the Father through him, but the authorities that are there challenge this. They're like, hey, what, who do you think you are, basically, is what they're saying. Give me some sort of sign, and what they missed was the sign that he had just did. The disciples realized something, whether they realized that after the resurrection or before is kind of unclear, but they saw in his zeal who he was. The authorities missed this, right? Because the, he, they're coming, Jesus is coming in and he's changing things around. Notice they don't challenge what he did. Do you know why they didn't challenge what he did? Because they knew it was wrong. They knew that was wrong. They just challenged his authority to do what he did. They have a question for him. They want to see some identification. And Jesus doesn't disappoint them. This is a constant clash that people have with Jesus, isn't it? It's kind of a clash that we can still have in our own life. Hey, hey, Jesus. Uh, what are you doing? Why are you doing this in my life right now, Jesus? Jesus, what gives you the right to do that? Jesus, can I see some ID, please? It's funny, a lady tells a story. She said, tired of struggling with my strong-willed three-year-old son, Thomas, I looked him in the eye and asked the question. We know those times, right? You're going to look him in the eye and you're going to say something that's going to change. You're going to wow that. You're going to be like, you're never going to forget this moment in your life. You've wronged the wrong person. She said, I, I asked him a question I felt sure would bring him in the line. Th Thomas, th Thomas, look at me. Thomas, th th no, Thomas, right here. Who's in charge here, right? How many people have said that, right? You said that? Hey, do you, do you, know, do you know, do you see how much bigger I am than you? Who's in charge here? So she says this. Not missing a beat, our Sunday school, born and bred toddler, Three years old replies, Jesus is. <laughs> Isn't that right? That's a great answer. Who's in charge? Jesus. <laughs> if a three-year-old can get it, I hope that we could too. But sometimes 
Sometimes, kind of like these guys. And we wonder what he's doing. We don't like the fact that he's cleaning things up in our own lives or in the lives of our church. Maybe we invite Jesus into our house. Maybe we, we, we believe in Christ. And we're like, hey, Jesus, you come in, right? But can, can you just stand right there in the corner? No, Jesus, you can't touch that, Jesus. That's where that belongs. Jesus, what I, Jesus, I'm going to put you in a timeout, Jesus. I just want you here for insurance purposes only. We challenge them. I was looking at this passage this week, you know, and there's, there's few times that I look at a passage and I'm like, yeah, I got that covered. <laughs> or I don't have to worry about that. And I, I think about what we've just been through in the, in the pandemic and, the, and COVID and everything like that. And I acknowledge the sovereignty of Christ in my life. I acknowledge the fact that I can preach this all day long. Jesus has a right to mess you up. <laughs> Jesus can come in and clean things up. But when it happens, it's a different story, isn't it? Because all this happened, and I'm like, wait a second, Jesus, we're going to have to have a conversation because I didn't plan on this. And we were going strong. We were having all these programs, doing all these things. And I'm like, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Remember his goal. His goal isn't me. His goal isn't my church. His goal is his church. And his goal is the worship of the Father. And if we believe in the sovereignty of God, we believe that he's in control of all things, then he this is his plan to purify us, isn't it? To clean things up, see where we're at, to refocus us on what really matters, and that's the worship of him. When he gets asked this question, he lays down his card, basically. He predicts his own resurrection. He says to them, and it's also kind of telling them the authority that he has. He says, look, you destroy this temple, and he's referring to himself, and who's going to raise it up again? I'm going to raise it up again. How many people have ever made predictions in life? You guys ever make predictions? Yeah, tried to make some. I take people fishing, and I'm like, hey, you're going to catch a bunch of fish, right? Patrick's been a victim of my prediction, haven't you, Patrick? No, Pat, you're going to have the time of your life, dude. You're not going to be able to, your arm's going to hurt so much. And then does that prediction happen? Nope, doesn't happen. Does Patrick trust me more or less after that point? Less, right? But we got, didn't I make up for that this past week? Yeah, we made up for it. Patrick, we got pictures on Facebook. We took Patrick fishing. You ever make predictions like that? And, and the goal sometimes is to be like, hey, I'm going to tell you this is how it's going to happen, you know, whatever it is. And people trust in you a little bit more. Oh, hey, you were right about that, right? Je you know, Jesus makes a prediction here. And Jesus's, all of Jesus' predictions come true, don't they? I might have shared some of these before. Here's are some really bad predictions uh, that were spoken of years, years ago. 
Um, this is what uh, one teacher said. It doesn't matter what he does, he'll never amount to anything. You know whose teacher that was? Albert Einstein's. How about this one? I, I, I shared this one before, I think. Law will be simplified over the next century. Lawyers will have diminished and their fees will have been vastly curtailed. That was by a journalist in 1893. This one, I, this one I really like. Before man reaches the moon, your mail will be delivered within hours from New York to Australia by guided missiles. We stand on the threshold of rocket mail. I don't think mail, I don't think postal delivery has gotten faster. <laughs> Sorry, it might have gotten a little slower, but I, you know, rocket mail, maybe Amazon with their drones. But I, I want us to see here that Jesus' predictions are not like this. And it's interesting at the result of what happens. Remember, what is John's goal? That you may, what, believe that Jesus is the Son of God? The Messiah, that by believing in his name, you will have eternal life. Those that confront him aren't those who are going to believe. It is those who are watching him do this and say this. Two times, his disciples have a response. They remember and they believe. They remember what was written in the scripture about his zeal. They remember the scriptures that are spoken about the resurrection. And they remember that Jesus actually makes this prediction. Jesus says this. If you're struggling in your faith today, if you're wondering or doubting, do what the disciples do here. Remember and believe. These things are written down for you. God is confirming to us by these predictions, many, many predictions. The problem is, is people don't want to read the Bible. This is where the confirmation is. And then when we believe on him, the confirmation is in our hearts and souls, isn't it? Because he changes our lives. We're living proof of that right now. What Jesus says here, he says for his disciples. He speaks this and he says, in three days. He gives, he gives three days. What this also shows us about Jesus is that his whole goal was predetermined. His goal in life was to come to earth, to be born a man, to live, suffer, die, be buried and rise again for you and me. It's not an accident. He knows what's going to happen because it was written beforehand. It is a planned purpose. It is a self-prediction. And in saying this, it also points to his authority. If you have the authority to raise your own life, you know why my predictions don't come to pass? Why, why do our predictions not always come to pass? We're not God. He's God. That's why he can say that, and that's why it comes to pass, because God knows. And it also points to his power and his authority. Indirectly, when Jesus calls himself the temple, the temple is where God's presence is, and Jesus replaces the temple in this story, and he's replacing the worship of God from the temple to himself. 
people will now worship God through Jesus Christ. All that he says comes to pass because he is who he says he is. There are passages in Scripture that point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're not specifically mentioned here, but there's allusions in Genesis. There's specific passages in the book of Psalms. There's allusions in Job, and there's allusions in Jonah. And Jesus is later going to say to those individuals, the only sign that you are going to be given is the sign of Jonah. Three days, rise again. All of those things to who Jesus is. It's pretty interesting because when it comes to resurrections, many people, even out there today, there's stories in Africa that people are raising the dead right now. They're coming to people, and actually those people haven't, weren't dead to begin with. They're alive. And they're doing that in order to manipulate people into doing what? Trusting them and giving them money. And they prey on their hopelessness. Jesus' resurrection gives hope to those that are hopeless. It's not a stunt. It points to the fact that he is God's son and that he came to secure those worshipers for the Father. The outcome of what he says or the realization, as one commentator states it, Jesus is in complete and utter control. And Jesus has the authority to do what he wants. Jesus says this later on in John 10, 18, regarding his life. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. I think this passage offers us also a word of caution. The people were demanding of Jesus quite often. Do a sign, Jesus. Jesus, show me who you are. Even on the cross when he's hanging on the cross. Hey, if you are who you say you are, come down, Jesus. You're nobody. As if, as if Jesus Christ needs our approval. He doesn't need our approval. He doesn't need man's approval. He doesn't need to do parlor tricks for you and me. It is the ultimate confirmation of his identity, the ultimate confirmation of his power, and the ultimate confirmation of his authority. He has authority over life and death, and he has authority over you and me. I think many times people challenge God because they don't want to submit to who he is. They make him do tricks. Make him show himself. Why? Because they're just delaying submitting to his authority over their life. And we might do the same thing. Make him prove himself all over again. What we need to do is stop challenging him and start trusting in him. Trusting in him. Submitting in him doing what the disciples did. His answer to this challenge has been given. It's the final word. God doesn't need to give us any more signs. He gave us his son. His son suffered, died, was buried, and he rose again, just like he said he was going to do. 
Why? For you and me. So that you and I can worship the Father. So that you and I can worship the Father for all eternity. Nothing else needs to be done. Clears the way for us. A number of years ago, there's a guy playing a friendly man's, men's game of softball. I don't think there's ever a friendly men's game of softball, is there? The umpire made a call that really incensed the coach. He said, my coach didn't agree with the ump's interpretation of a specific league rule. The game stopped, and there you go, right? The guy runs out, and a heated discussion starts kicking dirt on his shoe. Finally, the ump sighed as he pulled the rule book from his back pocket and proceeded to read page 27, paragraph 3B, section 1. He concludes and he says, as you can clearly see, I have the right to make this call. Unconvinced, my coach said, but you're not interpreting that rule correctly. To which the umpire replied, I think I should know. I'm the guy who wrote this book. The, after an awkward silence, the coach walked back to the bench, shaking his head and pointing to the ref as he told us, get a hold of that guy. He wrote the book. Jesus' divine credentials give him unquestionable authority. Jesus is the book. The worship of the Father happens through Jesus alone, and Jesus has the right to purify that worship. We can challenge that all day long, folks. But there is coming a time when we're not going to be able to anymore. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this, For this reason also God highly exalted who? Jesus. And bestowed on him the name which is above some names? All names. So that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, those who are in the earth, and those who are under the earth. And every tongue will confess that who is Lord? Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is another prediction that I'm pretty sure is going to happen. We can challenge him all our lives, but there's coming a time when that will end. He's going to return, and he will appear on the scene just like he did at that temple, but this time he's going to purify not just the temple, the entire world. And all of those that challenge Jesus, I'm going to tell you right now, you are going to lose. We can submit and believe in him now and accept the life that he has for us or we can face him in the end. Jesus knows who he is. That's not the question. The question is, do you and I? Father, we thank you for what you've done 
through Christ. That the way to you has been secured by his life, death, and resurrection. Father, help us to have that as our main concern. Help us to give our lives fully to him. To be solely devoted to you. To allow you to work in our lives so that you may be glorified in all we do. We love you and we praise you. And it is in that exalted name of Jesus we pray. Amen.